I should probably put a couple of disclaimers out there. One is, I never let the truth get in the way of a good story, and I'm certainly not going to allow anyone else to do so. Probably not a misfix-it, but I do play one on TV. I only want to hear the good stuff, right? Yeah, for sure. I only want to hear the good stuff. Welcome to the Backstory Perspective. We're going to sit down and listen to a few stories. I appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with me today. On this episode of The Backstory Perspective, we spent an afternoon in the park with Sean McCarthy and Mark Kidd. Have a seat and join us. My name is Mark Kidd, and I have been a company name redacted. We don't want to get anyone fired. Driver for longer than I want to admit. Um, Thank you. One of the stories that uh, I want to relate to you, uh, and this has to do with the importance of not letting a a big company dehumanize you, you know. But um, romantically enough, this will start with, it was the last stop of the night. (laughs) 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 It was snowing in a town that doesn't normally get snow, and it was stacking up pretty quick, and I went to make a delivery to this this shabby, shabby house in a kind of a declining neighborhood. And you could tell it was a a hoarder's house by the way that the curtains and the Venetian blinds around the house were just pushed up against the window, you know, because the house is just full of shit. And, you know, the yard was in disrepair, and we can curse, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, yes. the yard was in disrepair. There was... You could just tell that it was someone who their life had been consumed by something else. You know, there were um, uh, little trees growing out of the gutters and, yeah, and people trees don't falling in the yard. Get there know. overnight either. Trees don't no. grow in the gutter overnight. Yeah. It's, so uh, something happened. It's a, it's a decline, a long decline. So anyway, I go up to the door of this place and um, this old man comes to the door. And as soon as the door opens, this German shepherd shoots out between his legs and takes off into the night, right? Well, the old man's like freaked out. He's like, this guy's up in his 90s. He goes, oh my God, that dog, that, that, I got to get the, that, my fucking granddaughter. Oh, she's, it's, he's dog sitting. He is a hostage, basically. Oh, <laughs> man, he, all right. So I said, let me, let me go see if I can get the dog, right? And I... I tracked that dog for 20 minutes through this neighborhood. I'm falling down. There's snow. We're not used to snow around here. There's six inches of snow. More is falling. The dog is loving. He's a German shepherd. You know, how long has it been since this guy's seen snow? You know, he's been locked up in this hoarder's house. (laughs) And he is just off to the races, right? So I'm like trying to chase this dog through the neighborhood. I'm seeing him dart between houses. And dogs don't play by any rules. They don't just like stay in the street or on the sidewalk. They're wherever they want to go. Fast forward, you know, I finally grab a hold of the dog and I drag him by his collar back to the truck, okay, and then drive the truck over to the guy's house. And I go up to the door and the guy comes to the door and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe you got this dog. 
You're the he hero. Goes, yeah, I'm the hero. The dog goes in the house, you know, the guy shuts him in the house and he goes, I can't believe, he goes, you wait here, I got to give you something. I'm like, you know, I don't really need anything, it's okay. No, 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 you're going to take something. And I'm thinking, okay, old people, they want to give you $2, $5, whatever. You don't want it, you don't need it, but you take it, you do it for them because it makes them feel good, okay? So I figure, all right, let this guy give me five bucks and call it a night, right? So the guy goes and he's rumbling around in the house and he comes back a few minutes later, right? And he, he holds his hand out to me. He's got some coins in it. I'm thinking, okay, this would be easy, you know, 50 cents, a dollar, whatever. And he drops these two diamond rings into my hand. Shut right. the front door. Yeah. Well, oh, the them... front door was open, which is how the dog got out. So, <laughs> <laughs> so shut the front door. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So. This is really cool, too. Like, it's got the V-shape. I mean, this is, this is, re- it's, it's inlaid. This is a custom piece. Yes, it is a custom piece. So I, I like jewelry, you know, I'm fancy as fuck. I mean, at least I'll tell you I am. <laughs> this is cool. All right. All right. So drops these rings in my hand and I tell him there's no way I can take these. All right. And he says, no, I want you to take those. Nobody else would have gone and got that fucking dog. He goes, nobody would have done that. He goes, you don't know what it's like for me living in this house. My bitch granddaughter moved in here three years ago. She eats through everything. She takes everything. She sells everything. Look at the way this place is. This was my house, and now look at my life, you know. He goes, I got no time left, all right, and you're taking that ring. Let me tell you about that ring. He says, when I got out of the Army... I went to work in New York City on Music Row, and I worked there for 50 years, and I knew all them Rat Pack bastards, that Joey Bishop, that Sammy Davis, that Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, give me that ring in 1953. Okay, because yeah, those guys, they used to give those things out like they were candy. They gave them to showgirls. They gave them to bartenders. They just always had some little trinkets like this on them. So Frank Sinatra, give me that ring, 1953. And if you don't take that ring, it's going to stay hidden in a hole in the wall in this house until they tear this house down because that bitch granddaughter of mine is not getting it. <laughs> She's I'm not sorry getting that it. He's having a rough day, man. Because that other one, that other one, that other gold one, it's missing a ruby and it's got some little stone. And he goes, you just sell that, get a hundred bucks or something like that for that. He goes, you do whatever you want. But this other ring, he goes, Frank Sinatra gave that to me in 1953. I ain't got no place to take it with me when I go. I'm going to be gone soon. You're taking that fucking ring, okay? You got Frank Sinatra's ring, and you got this story, and I want you to go tell this story. Wow. And so why, why don't you tell him why you weren't supposed to take the ring? Oh, well, redacted. Has a, I mean, the company that I work for has an <laughs> unnamed career company. The, the unnamed now, Yeah, this company, company that I work for has a policy against gifts of over 25 or $50 or something like that, right? But this guy put it to me in a, in a, in a way that made me understand that he was lucid. And for, you know, in the beginning when he was trying to give me this thing, I was thinking, okay, this guy's off his rocker. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, he'd been hiding this in a hole in the wall to keep it away from this woman. 
and he saw his one chance. You know, I was put there for a reason that night. Yeah. You know? And it speaks back to the, you know, the opening here was, you know, if you let, if you become desensitized or dehumanized, you'll miss out on some experiences. And in this case, it was, you know what, you could just say, fuck it and go home and clock out. Or you could go see if you can catch this dog. And, and you make, caught the and dog. And make the guy's life simpler, you know, and the dog's life simpler and everybody's life simpler. It ain't going to take you but 20 minutes, you know. Right. You go, you do that. And I did that. And I just brought the dog back and was ready to let it go with that and maybe get, you know, a 50 cent tip or whatever it was that he was insisting on giving me. And it turns out to be, you know, this platinum ring with a half a carat diamond on it. It's, it is. It's a gorgeous ring. It's a 1950s, you know, Art Deco design. And I'm proud of it. You know, it's um, super cool. It's a great story. You wanna, and you want to tell them who your manager was when this particular event some occurred? asshole. I don't remember his <laughs> name. Um, big, big guy. Um, army. Dude. Lots of kids. Sean. Thank you. Well, Lots at the of time, kids. At the time. So I, I didn't did. know this story when it happened for the record. In case anybody's paying attention. Right. I, was, I was unaware <laughs> of it at the time when it was relevant. Yes. <laughs> right. That's a really great story. So you two met working together is that my understanding yes for a company together, called brand together is not the phrase that i would use it was uh he worked for me i think is, is the appropriate way to say it. no i was <laughs> i was uh i was hired off the street by redacted and put in this remote outpost of a delivery station and it was mostly um mostly I, so there was one person younger than me at the time and it was a part-time pickup driver Everybody else was older than me. Some of them had kids older than me. And uh, um, my boss worked about two and a half hours away. My nearest peer was about an hour and a half away. And it was just me and all these maniacs. And it was, uh, it was a, an interesting adventure. But this guy here was my, he was my, I don't want to call it a spy because it wasn't like, wasn't like voluntary. He, he, was, he was the one who, who knew what was going on. And would give me clues when I was screwing up. He was like my early you. warning that's system. That's nice. That's right. a good. That's a good plan to have. Let me tell you because I happen to work for a particular individual who is sitting here, and the <laughs> the context clues before something it goes sideways is very important. The the man who stands behind the man and whispers in his ear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, I I kind of feel like that guy in the movies how when somebody's called into the big man's office, there's always a guy sitting on a couch that doesn't have any lines or anything, but he's just sitting on the couch and he's got his knees crossed and his fingers laced over his knee and he's there taking it all in. And he doesn't like I say he doesn't have a part, you know. It's like after everybody leaves, he probably assesses the situation for the guy who's in charge. That's who I want to be. When he told me that story, uh, for I think well, I think you told me once before, but you read you, you told me for the second time I think last night. It's a it's a good metaphor for the project that you're working on. It's like you know the stories will go down with the people if they That's, don't get told if yeah. they don't get documented and. You know, we, we, there's so much of history that we only have second and third hand accounts of. Yes. And, you know, now we have the ability, you know, unless you were back in the Civil War, you had to be willing to write a journal for us to have a first hand story. Now all you got to be willing to do is sit down and talk to somebody with a microphone. 
So if if I don't if I don't reemerge soon, my wife yes. is probably going to protest. But yeah. I did. I, I've got I've got one story. So I've been planning to do stand up for years now. I have a file on my phone that probably translates to about twenty printed pages of bits. Like whenever something happens, I'm like, this would be funny, and and I'll like you know kind of like arrange it on my phone. But then of course I and I'll practice them. Like I practice stuff during morning huddles. You guys have all been kind of like guinea pigs for me from time to time, and we and have so morning I'll, huddles. I'll, I'll I'll practice. Well, not anymore. Now I'm a coordinator, so I don't nah. think I have them anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think my you're going to have to do this. Audience is gone. You might have to do this. Um, we'll have we'll have a meeting once a week just for me to try stand up bits on people. Be like, there's no point to this. Just what do you think about this story? But um, so there's one story in particular that uh, this wouldn't be a stand up one because it's not it's not primarily funny. But it's something that I've also thought about doing the moth, and I've never had the never had the the guts to actually get around to doing that either. But so when when I went to when I deployed, I deployed to the Balkans. So. Um, former Yugoslavia. So I, so I deployed to the Balkans, and I don't know how much you know about Balkan history. Most people don't know a whole lot, but during, um, so you know, real bad guy Slobodan Milosevic. Um, in order to kind of, he was a Serb, and in order to grab more power, I suppose he took some old, um, some old hurt feelings from a battle that had happened in the 1300s, I believe. I know the original one was in the 1100s at the field of Kosovo Pohe, where the armies of the Turkish sultan defeated the armies of a Serbian prince, Prince Lazar, who in the Serbian Orthodox religion is a saint at this point Um, and and very popular amongst militant Serbs. And so the the Turks won. uh, The sultan died. Prince Lazar died, but the Turks won. So the standard kind of Turkish subjugation was convert to Islam or your life's going to be even less pleasant. And so uh, the Albanians in that area generally converted. The Serbs generally did not. And so that was kind of the start of a rift that lingered for, you know, to still well still today. And so despite that, um, up until Slobodan Milosevic, the two ethnicities lived next to each other. They shared communities and things were more or less peaceful. And then when Milosevic, on the 200th anniversary of... Uh, the Battle of Kosovo Pohe, he stirred up tensions and a lot of violence came out. And so you had neighbors killing neighbors, right? And so it started out with Serbs attacking Albanians, killing Albanians. And then the Albanians rallied um, and organized a group called the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was as violent as the Serbs were. It was it was brutal. And it was almost so bad that we, when when America was trying to decide how to get involved, we almost labeled them a terrorist group and went after them because they, they were bad. But they were, you know, the other guy punched first, really. So um, we kind of sympathized with them a little bit more. Uh, and ultimately, we went in and, and we helped fight the Serbs and we helped support, to an extent, the KLA. So as soon as the tide turned and the KLA had momentum, they returned the favor in, in terms of rape and murder and that sort of a thing. And so when we got to the Balkans, we had a province that we were responsible for. I was on a civil military operations team. And our job was, among other things, so we, we met uh, we met 
people who were in positions of power. We were supposed to kind of like coach them on how to not be douchebags in their positions of power. You know, like, listen, you know, yes, I know you hate the Serbs, but you are the mayor and there are Serbs here. So no, you can't just do bad things to them. That is not acceptable. You've got to represent them too. People have trouble understanding that. And, and bear in mind, I was there, you know, the violence had been over with for a decade. Well, maybe not quite, but um, around a decade. So, you know, they had a little bit of time to, to get over it. And when we got there, we had this province and we were responsible for, among other things, directing international aid. So a lot of international companies have money, international organizations, NGOs have money. They want to spend that money in certain ways. I want to help farmers. I want to help schools, whatever. And you would be the person who would find those, those outlets for them because they didn't want to send teams into what was still technically a combat zone. And so we went into this province and most of our area was pretty Albanian. We didn't have a lot of Serbian enclaves. And the one main Serbian enclave we had had a mayor a Serbian mayor who was a real good dude. Uh, and so we got along pretty well there. But there was this one little town called Donja Badriga or Donja Badriga. I'm not sure which one's correct because I heard it pronounced both ways. And it was this little town. It was off a major road and it came off this major road and, and it kind of went toward the mountains. And when you first come off the road, there was the Serbian part of it. And then you, there was like a little section where there was nothing. And then the Albanian part of it. And this town had some pretty brutal fighting back and forth during the war. Um, the, the Serbs, you know, raped and murdered the Albanians. The Albanians returned the favor, as happened throughout the country. So when we first get to this town, we're on our little welcome to uh, Kosovo tour. And our interpreter, who welcome was a real... Welcome to Kosovo. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much, you know, it's like, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't eat the food there. Don't drink the coffee there. And don't look at anybody in the eyes over here. That was kind of the, the orientation. And so we get into Doña Rodriga, and my interpreter, who was a Macedonian, who we joked, he was a real big guy, and he looked real, real happy and funny until he didn't. And when he didn't, you're like, that guy's got a darkness. Like, he's killed people. You know he has. And we used to joke that he was like a, a KLA hitman, and he would just be like, oh, no, sir. And just kind of look at you. It's like that. <laughs> yeah, he, he was. He totally was. So we go into this town, and um, we and he was usually pretty easy going. We went. We got into Doña Madriga, and it was me and this female E five that worked for me. And he was like, "You got to be very careful in here because." He told me about a, a lieutenant a couple years earlier had gone in there and had taken down posters of Slobodan Milosevic. And next thing you know, there's like a mob, you know, sharpening pitchforks ready to kill this guy. And my terp told me that, well, he, he saved him by saying that the lieutenant was a big fan and he just wanted to take these, these things home. And you don't have any police chasing you, do you? <sighs> You're still telling the story? How, how long he was just... I gone? It was a long setup. <laughs> um, so, listen. You guys have talked to each I'm other before. I'm the story. Yeah. Right? He's, he's just, laying that. You can't just spit out the You're recording it like Mark. a freaking Amishman, okay? I mean... <laughs> Do it's it hand, like a modern handcrafted. There's, okay? no, there's no machine. Throw that involved fucker in up in a day and call it a night. <laughs> so anyway, in this town, we uh, we we we're in this town. He, they warn me that the Serbs here basically hate us. And there's a little church right right off the road in this town. And the priest there, Serbian Orthodox Church. The priest there was a man named Father Drago, and he looked like you would expect Father Drago to look. 
He was small. He had a very long, dark beard. He had eyes that looked like they went right through you. And he looked like he was the kind of guy who could order somebody disappeared if he was inclined to do so. And Father Drago pretended he didn't speak English, even though everybody knew he did. Uh, And he would not speak to Americans directly. He wouldn't even look at us. He just did not a fan. So me and my, uh, my E5, we went in this little town and there was a little school there. And we said, you know, we're going to make we're going to make a difference in this town. And my turbo was like, ha, 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 sure you are. Let's just get out of here. And so we decided that we were going to work out through the course of our deployment. We were going to try to have a med cap at this town. Now, a med cap is when all of the medical folks from the army, they come there. They've got dentists and doctors of all different varieties. And it's just like, come on in. We'll treat you. And they'll even do minor surgeries like they'll take, you know, vaccinations, um, health checkups, referrals to to, um, you know, to come to American institutions, you know, within in country to get big treatments done. It's a pretty big deal. And a lot of these people don't have access to that treatment. But it's got to be something that Albanians and Serbs are both going to go to, especially if it's in a Serbian town. And and the powers that be were concerned that if we had it there, nobody would go because the Serbs hate us and the Albanians wouldn't want to go into the Serbian area to do it. So throughout the course of our time there, we, there were a couple Serbs that we knew that we had good relationships with. And so we kind of start worming our way into Father Drago's little circle. Um, we, we got him to meet with us at this, at this place. And this is over the course of several months, mind you. But there's this place called Sar Lazar. Sar uh, Lazar. After Prince Lazar. Yeah. Bear in mind, he was never a Sar of any sort. He was okay. a prince. And, and not even that important of one at the time until he became a martyr, basically. And so Sar Lazar was this little, it was this little restaurant and it was, you walk in there and if it wasn't for the electricity, you would believe you were in like 1300, like Constantinople, like time frame. Everything was very old, very smoky. And they had a pig farm out back. They literally just, it's like the lobster tank. At Red Lobster, except with pigs. <laughs> you pick your pig. And, you get to and it's pick like, your pork. You know, point at which part of him you want, and they'll they'll slice him up for you real quick. And so we met. We met. Uh, we had a couple rendezvous at Sar Lazar to meet with Father Drago. This uh, this all sounds very sinister, but ultimately we got him to agree to support this endeavor. And so we, we got him to agree, and then we had to, like, when we told the, the military people that they made the final decision, they were like, we want you to get him to agree again, just in case. And so we got him to agree again, just in case, and ultimately everything gets put together. And they, were, they wanted to do it the month after we left country, and we were like, fuck no. Like, right. you will, like this shit's going to happen before we leave country, because this is going to be our swan song. We're doing this. So ultimately, we got all everything lined up. And we had uh, the little, the little tiny shitty Serbian school right inside of town. We uh, we had this event, and we spent a lot of time going to the Albanians who were a little bit past the Serbs who usually didn't go into the Serbian part of town. And being like, guys, it'll be safe. We promise, it'll be safe. We'll be there. We're, you know, you like us, we like you. We won't let the bad Serbs do anything. And then of course we were telling the Serbs like we told the Albanians to come. So if they come, don't kill them because you know we invited them. And ultimately we have this event. And huge turnout. And e- there's even a, at one point the, the Serbs. So there was this basketball court, really shitty basketball court. And the Serbs and the Albanian kids were just kind of like standing on opposite edges of it, just kind of looking at each other, daring one of them to like do something with the basketball, I guess. And ultimately, we had a couple of the younger soldiers go out there and started playing basketball. And the Serbian Albanian kids joined in. And so me and my E5 went to this coffee shop. 
that we had first gone to and, and we didn't order coffee there because it was we sat there. But we didn't That's order coffee. That's not the place to get coffee. It was not a safe place. So we okay. ordered coffee that time and we sat there with our turp and we watched because you could see the school. You could see the line of people and you could see these kids playing basketball. And that was our kind of like final, like we did it. We got yeah, this you got everybody Father to come Drago together. to acquiesce. He, and he, he made an appearance. All he did was stand off in the corner and brood. He didn't go <laughs> into the building, but he did stand there and make brooding an appearance. Father Drago. And when we saw Father Drago brooding, but with no violence and or ordering violence, and then the, the Albanian and the Serb kids playing basketball and sitting there drinking coffee served to us by a Serb who, in a town that didn't like American soldiers, we thought, you know, maybe there really is hope for the world if we can get Father Drago to agree to a medcap. In, uh, in Doña Madriga. So that's my feel-good story that requires a little setup, Mark, because sometimes you have to give background information. Just saying. So this is the backstory perspective, and if you don't give the backstory and the setup, you don't have any perspective. Sean, I want to thank you so much for your time. I'm going to yes. go I really to appreciate my it. flock, but yes. I'll let you tell your story without my interruptions. Listen, I really, I really appreciate. I don't know you. if we have time. Well, you have time. <laughs> I mean, I go check hey, this I want to yeah. see all you guys before you go. But are we gonna? Do we have this time for one more? This is what we're doing. I mean, like one, this is the quick one. part yeah, of we'll, we'll this. Start, I mean, I'm I'll show you how. Gonna, like, okay. I, mean, I have six kids, man. We don't yeah. disappear. Okay, that's true. <laughs> it right. takes a hot minute to get all that stuff yeah. organized. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much again. Hey, I really no appreciate it. And we'll we'll talk and we'll like figure out game plans for like other stuff and you know. In a fitting twist, we found out later that there was more to Mark's story about the Rat Pack rings. We caught up with him on the phone, and here's what he had to say. So a couple weeks later, um, my manager at the time, Sean McCarthy, who I think you know, um, had gotten a call, what we call a trace, on a missing package <laughs> and he mentioned this address and he said did you have any recollection of the delivery to this address and i thought oh man this is gonna this is this could be serious you know um apparently the uh the daughter you know, I was thinking the daughter has um, gotten wind of this and now the whole thing's going to blow up. So uh, I said, well, let me go down there and see what I can see. And Sean said, yeah, fine. Just, you know, figure it out. It was a pretty cool, dude. And uh, so I went back down there and the address that was apparently on the package is not where I went at all. Um, you know, it was snowing and it was dark. and I was off by a couple of houses, you know, the houses on the block are, you know, they go in a sequence of 10, you know, 320, 330, 340. And the, uh, the package was supposed to go about three doors down. Um, so when I realized that, the first thing I did was I went to the actual house that I had been at with the German Shepherd and <laughs> um, the daughter came to the door um, and I said hey uh i misdelivered a package <laughs> here um like like two weeks ago uh it was about this big and she just cut me off and she goes we haven't seen anything like that oh and closed the door <laughs> right end of story i didn't get to ask about the old man or anything like that 
Um, so then I went down to the house where the package actually belonged and they were home and I told them what had happened, you know, I mean, just the thumbnail sketch. Um, I misdelivered their package uh, to the old guy in the house on the corner. And they, they knew this, you know, they knew the story. I asked them what it was and they said, well, it was a, you know, a digital camera, about 700 bucks. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and I said, well, I hope, I hope that um, you can just file a claim on it you know um and they said yeah it's no problem it's a little hassle but you know we can do that it wasn't like you know a camera with a memory card in it it was a new camera so it won't be any trouble to replace it it's a lot easier now that we know what happened to it i said yeah you know you may be able to get it back from them i tried and um i got stonewalled so i think that once it's in that house and they finished the sentence for me you know, they kind of knew. They said, yeah, once it's in that house, it's gone. Or good is gone. So, you know, I reported back to Sean and told him, you know, misdelivered the house. Um, they're keeping the package. I misdelivered. I delivered it to the wrong house. Uh, I went there. They're denying possession. So it's effectively gone. And uh, that I had told the right people. Uh, I had told the, the actual people what had happened so that can all go into the trace and they can file a claim but you know the longer point of it is um if ever there were a case for um kismet or fate whatever you want to call it the fact that i was i mistakenly went to that house and that sequence of events happened um in a nick of time by this man's timeline. He didn't have much time left. Been hiding this thing in a hole in the wall. And it's not like he got visitors, you know, they kind of kept a wall around him. And um, I just thought it was poetic that on that, that night, I went to the wrong place <laughs> and, a, and a very, uh, a very important thing happened. And I, you know, the great gift to me was not so much the ring, but the story, you know, and as, as the man said, you know, you got, you got Frank spring and you got this story. You tell the story. So, um, that you, took a whole different turn <laughs> two weeks yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That took yeah. a completely different turn that I was definitely not expecting. Um, I don't know what I expected out of that story, but I thought the beginning was pretty remarkable. But yeah, you talk about the stars aligning or it being kismet or the universe coming together. Now, that story would not have been told publicly until we met you. And I literally said one night, yeah, let's let's do this. I'll just stop by whoever's house you're visiting in Bloomington on my way. I mean, how awkward yet poetic. So I just yeah. stopped and said, here I am, Bloomington. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Sean, um, who was a manager, like I said, at the time, uh, you know, the company has a policy against gifts over $25, value $25. And, you know, it wasn't until 
you know, the statute of limitations in my mind <laughs> yeah. cleared, cleared me of, you know, like telling Sean. And of course, by then he didn't work for the company anymore either, you know. And, and I think his response was, uh, and I think he even alluded to it in our meeting in the park, you know, was like, it was one of those things I was better off not knowing about at the yeah. time, you know. So, all right. So, um, I'll let you go. And thanks again. Maybe I'll see you on Friday. Sounds great. Right. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, thanks Mark. Okay. All right, John. See you. Bye, Courtney. Bye. Bye.